Hello, guys. How's it going? Hi, Sailor. Hi. How's it going, guys? Going hey. well. Dave? Definitely going great, man. Thank you guys for having me again. Yeah, we're psyched to have you here. Thanks for step- Thanks for stepping in. You know, uh, Ed is in, um, I think he's in Aruba or something. He's um, filling in for those, you know, those um, pirate tourist ships where they do all these like fancy dances and stuff. Yeah. You got a side gig doing that. So that's what he's off doing. So Wolfman Dave is back in the studio with us tonight. You know, I heard a very different story about Ed. <laughs> it's all lies. I just told you the story, damn it. And it's Well, no. I mean, after the comments he made on last week's show. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. So listeners who listened uh, to the Alice in Chains episode yeah. should remember should remember Ed's derogatory comments in regards to the old Forrester taste profile, <laughs> where he had a, th- a thing or two, a very sharp, biting comments about um, citrus flavor profiles and orange, if you will. Um, so he was actually invited to partake in a seminar at the Center of Citrus Kinship, <laughs> or COCK. <laughs> um to expand, yeah, I know, really, uh, to expand his palate and uh, really have an appreciation for citrus fruits of all kinds. So he's working on some issues as we speak. That's what oh I heard, anyway. God. But who knows what's true, as we've seen. I mean, on this I really show. hope he's out getting trained in cock. I mean, <laughs> well, cock oh, apparently cool. called him after those comments. So, oh, geez, this could go really. Let's just stop it here. Just stop. It. Let's let's just. Because I'm going to take it in a bad way, and let's not do that. <laughs> I guess, Moving I guess along. We'll, we'll just have to wait till Ed comes back to find out what's then going on. Then he can tell us, is it pirate or cock? Up to him. Well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and all you 21-plus, hopefully, listeners out there, <laughs> let's talk about a few new things. Mm. Um, we made the announcement uh, over the past, what was it, two weeks ago, that we... Uh, created a new podcast network called the Spirit of Rock Podcast Network. And that is actually going to be the feed where you will find all of our shows. And we will um, be announcing some more new shows very, very soon. Uh, We have merch coming out, um, as I promised. Uh, We have our buttons and stickers out. Um, Thank you, guys. Um, Those of you that have been ordering them, I need to have more made. That's awesome. And uh, we just um, had a new Glen Cairn made for us. Um, And if you don't know what that is, it is very cool, special whiskey glass to simplify it. Um, It looks badass. It is so cool. So It is a thing of beauty. It is really Mm -hmm. a thing of beauty. I'm super excited. Um, and I am doing a very limited um, pre-sale price, um, and then the price is going to go up. But um, for the moment, you can get it for $15 plus shipping and handling. And I do not gouge on the shipping and handling. I do the handling for free. So, you know, <laughs> I may throw in some extra <laughs> extra goodies in there. And um, thank you so much to our buddy Ben from Barrel Raised. He is the one making the glasses for us, and he does a spectacular job. If you're on Instagram, check him out. If you have any needs for etching or anything like that, please uh, visit BarrelRaised.com. Super cool guy. Thank you, Ben. Um, And as always, we have our Patreon. And um, 
Now with the new network, uh, what you will get as a Patreon is going to expand. We're going to start releasing special shows that will only be available to our Patreons. Mm -hmm. So if you're a bestie friend of any of our shows, you definitely want to be a Patreon. And it's it's going to be any tier, $1 a month or $10,000 a month. And um, nice. if you want to give us $10,000 a month, I'll move into your house and cook and clean for you. Just so you nice. Know. Yes. There you go. So that's the news with that. Uh, did I miss it? I did, Matt. I missed something really important. What is it? Because uh, I'm not thinking of it either. About your new show with your wifey. Oh, that's kind of important. Yes. So my wife. I can hear your wife in my head going, Matthew. <laughs> so my wifey poo aka jenny from pretty good for a girl and myself have undertaken a new project uh we are both avid professional wrestling fans and it's always been a passion pro- well not always i shouldn't say maybe within the last year has been a passion project of ours to uh start our own wrestling show the show is titled wrestling with respect we are up on instagram right now so go follow us there at wrestling with respect uh, shows are coming soon, hopefully. Uh, working on a few odds and ends right now to get some material out to you guys. Uh, but it is basically quick gist. It's a show centered mainly focused only on female wrestlers, those who changed the business, those who have turned it upside down in recent years. So uh, come check us out. Give us a follow. We got some great stuff for you. I cannot wait. I heard your preview and I'm super excited. Um, and you guys will be hearing a preview very soon as well. And all of that will be found on the new Spirit of Rock Network. You're not going to have to change your feed. Um, you guys that are listening on your devices, it's going to be the same feed. You'll be able to get all of the shows on the same feed, which is also really we cool. We'll all be together. Yeah. Like yeah. one big happy family. Because <laughs> we are. We are one big happy family. We are. We are. Yeah. Sometimes we fight. Sometimes we get you know, sassy with each other, well, but what family does we it? love each other. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll kick all your asses, so, you know. <laughs> she will. She's not lying. She will. So, <laughs> listeners, on this show, uh, as you guys know, we usually battle albums, musicians, sometimes whiskey, uh, especially if we have, you know, different thoughts on different brands as that's why Ed is not here. Um, and tonight <laughs> and, and tonight is no different. We will be digging into another staple of the 90s to continue this theme that we're on. Uh, alt-rock, 90s alt-rock, I should say. More specifically, battling Smashing Pumpkins and their three huge albums, Gish from 1991, 1993's Siamese Dreams, and of course, The Big Dog, 1995's Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, I have a feeling that this is going to be really, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, to say the least. All right, so before we get into this epic battle... We must drink, of course. I've already started quite a few hours drink, ago. Drink, 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 <laughs> We got a great whiskey pairing tonight. I cannot wait for it. Specifically curated for this topic. But first, what is everyone drinking? I will start with our beautiful guest, 
here, Dave. I'm actually drinking Carta Blanca, Mexican oh. beer. It was on sale, so why not? I actually wow. know that stuff. One that gets swept under the rug mm-hmm. very frequently, yeah. 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 I don't have had one of those in maybe 10 years. I it's had, been a long time. Yeah. I can't remember what bar I worked at where I had a rep come in and go, you know, oh, I'm a rep for, and I forget, there, it was a few products and the Carta Blanca. And I said, oh, you know, let me taste it. And I said, what would you, as I'm opening the sample, I'm like, well, what would you say it compares to? And he literally said the best thing he could have ever said in his life. He said, screw Corona, drink this. If you like Corona, you can drink this. If you hate Absolutely. Corona, you'll want to drink this. And I was like, I don't even taste it. Just give it to me. Yeah, and that yeah. was it. And so I have a problem with Corona. So I try. <laughs> it's so That's, popular, you know. It's so true, though, because you don't actually have to put limes in it or anything like a Corona, right? Or Tecate. Sometimes you have to put limes. This one yeah. you don't need to. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I would definitely check that out, my friends. And if you do like Corona, check the hint. He was right. If you like Corona, you're going to feel like it's similar enough. If you don't like Corona, you're going to be like, oh, this is like a better Corona. So sure. yeah, good for anybody. Good choice. Maddie, how about you? Great choice. Um, I feel like I may have made a mistake because I think what I'm drinking tonight might lend toward your whiskey segment. You bastard. So I don't know if I should say what I'm drinking or just wait until you are You through. should wait because we're drinking the same thing probably. Okay, okay. Well, I'm drinking two things. I have, I, I had a sample of Wolf to take home of what my pairing is. But I also made myself a lazy cocktail, which this is becoming a theme with me. It happened the other night. I'm pretty good for a girl, so I better better (laughs) stop making lazy cocktails. All right. What's a lazy cocktail? It's just, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Just throwing shit together and seeing if it sticks? No, I mean, it's a a cocktail. It's just lazy because, you know, I make these at work. And when I get home, I just don't want to mess with making cocktails. Oh, and so, so I just... usually have stuff pre-batched in my fridge. Yeah. You know, I'll have like either jars or bottles or pitchers of stuff. And if I'm out, I'm just like, eh, I'll throw it all together and use my finger and just swirl it around. It'll be fine. <laughs> so it's half-assed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, asshole. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you don't have time to do, you know, what you want. And that do. was a whole asshole comment, not a half-asshole comment. <laughs> <laughs> what am I here for? <laughs> I don't know. Just kidding. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Love you. Yeah. All right. Should we get into this whiskey pairing? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So. We are talking about Smashing Pumpkins, the band, tonight. And with that band, I chose to pair Yamazaki 12-year single malt Japanese whiskey. Whiskey without the E. So let me start by saying you used to be able to grab a bottle for about 60 bucks. And used to, I don't mean 10 years ago, I mean, what, two years ago? One and a half Mm -hmm. years ago? No, I've much more recent than that, I think. Um, three, now, three, maybe? <laughs> I think it's like two years. Very recently. Yeah. Um, now you're going to you're gonna have to shell out about 200 bucks to get a bottle of this stuff. Wow. And that's 
There's an interesting reason why. It isn't because necessarily it got so popular. It is because of what's happening in Japanese whiskey, which is a super interesting topic. Matt, you and I should maybe do a show on this for the Patreon sometime. I agree. Um, Because it's really, really interesting and cool what's happening in Japanese whiskey. Um, It relates a little bit to what happened in American whiskey. Um, So um, the the Yamazaki whiskey is Suntory's flagship single malt whiskey from Japan's first and oldest malt distillery. Now, um, Suntory, if you're a bourbon drinker, you probably know who they are. They are a whiskey conglomerate, a Japanese whiskey conglomerate. They also own Jim Beam and all of the Jim Beam brands. They are actually called Suntory Beam. Um, so... Back to the Yamazaki. Um, The distillery is nestled on the periphery of Kyoto, and this region was formerly referred to as, and you're going to have to pardon um, me completely screwing up all of these Japanese words, (laughs) referred to as Minasino, I don't fucking know, where one of the purest waters of Japan originates. We'll just go with that. Sounds good. If you want to correct me, Matt, go for it. No, I, I... Okay. I don't know that um, one. <laughs> so the distillery also where it's located is um, where the Katsura, Uji, and Kizu rivers converge, providing a uniquely, they say, misty climate and one of Japan's softest waters. Um, and when they say softest, they mean just like when we say hard water, soft water. Um, but naturally. So the diversity of the region's temperatures there and the humidity creates ideal conditions for aging whiskey. And it's now known as the Suntory maturation. This single malt expression, Yamazaki, was actually born in 1984. It was the next step for um, Japanese whiskey as a whole because 1984 marked exactly 60 years since the first drop of whiskey was made at the Yamazaki distillery. And it was here that I feel horrible butchering his name, but I tried um, Is it, on uh, Google to get it. But Kaizu Saji, I'm hoping, you think? Sounds right. Kaizo? Kaizo Kaizu. Kaizu, I think. I don't know. Z- Zio Kaizo. Zio probably. Kaizo, I think. Kaizo yeah. Saji. Um, much respect, even if we're fucking up your name. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He pioneered the Japanese (laughs) single malt whiskey process. Um, The name Yamazaki actually speaks to the confidence and pride of the distillery's founding history. And the calligraphy on the bottle, so if you want to see the bottle, Google it. It's very pretty. It was actually done by Saji himself. And it represents Suntory's passion and, and I will put a picture up. I will, I will include a picture of myself with a bottle um, and represents Centauri's passion and celebrates the birth of the Japanese single malt. I want to tell you a cool story about their casks. This is really interesting. Cask is a wooden barrel. It's a whiskey barrel. Um, sometimes we call them barrels. Sometimes we call them casks, depending on typically uh, your region, I would say, really, uh, region or product. Um, bourbon tends to say barrels. Um, everything else tends to say casks. Uh, so this, the Mizunara, Mizunara, Mizunara. Mizunara, yeah. Casks are essential to Yamazaki, but they are very, very three times very rare. The story of these casks are, is very unique. 
So when the Pacific War began and it became increasingly difficult to import casks from around the world, the Suntory craftsmen were left with a problem. So they actually had to turn to a local oak called the Mizunara oak, which was then used as material for making furniture. So it's very hard wood. Um, Hmm. They had never considered using it for whiskey casks until this time. Um, They were prone to leaking and the wood's uh, hardness led to countless struggles in cask production. So the reason why super hardwood would be bad is you don't get... Um, so what's happening when you're aging whiskey in barrels, it's expanding and contracting with the weather. You don't typically use temperature-controlled environments, so you want a little bit softer wood. The harder it is, the less it's going to be able to expand and contract. So you're going to get splits in it, and you're going to lose that precious juice. Um, so when these whiskeys were first released using this Japanese oak, the strong flavors and aromas were not well-received by the blenders. So... Again, they had to figure out a way to get the flavor profiles that they were really looking for and that they felt was indicative of Suntory whiskey. So um, they started using a multiple cask process um, and finishing casks, which is very common uh, for Scotch whiskey and even more so important in this case. Um, They use Bordeaux and sherry casks for the Yamazaki. And now it's a distinct flavor profile Um, highly regarded by blenders and whiskey lovers inside and outside of Japan. And now these special Mizunada casks are indispensable. Um, So super cool. They were created by, you know, chance and convenience and um, enterprise. And now it's like it's a a specific flavor that you're looking for, which I think is super cool. And if you are an American distillery... Uh, or really any distillery who wants to purchase one of these casks, it's <laughs> going to cost you a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Upwards yeah. of maybe 10, 10 Gs, yeah. perhaps, it's which is how... Way. Yeah, exactly. And this is why you don't, you don't... Yeah. No, because of the type of wood, I don't know what you would even do with it, to be completely honest. You're, you're exactly. not going to get much out of it. Um, so let's now move on to the liquid. And I have some here in my Glencairn glass. Ugh. So they refer to it as spiritual and deep. And here are my tasting notes. So on the nose, I first got big, big berries. I put big, big in capital letters. Then I got dried fruits. And then those floral notes came through that I now understand are from that special wood, from those Mizunata casks. Um, I got incense that comes through here. Some say frankincense. I can't really, and sandalwood, I can't pick out specific incense. Usually I just say incense. Um, incense. Incense. <laughs> I hate that word. <laughs> incense. <laughs> Hippie shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then in the nose, I had read several people say, saying that they had found coconut. And I will admit it took me quite a while to find this coconut. And it wasn't until I left um, just a little bit of this liquid in the in my glass overnight, came back to it the next morning, and bam, there was the coconut. Really interesting. There is a lot going on in this nose. Um, I mean, a lot, a lot. It's not scotch. I would take a sip. No, it's not Irish whiskey. Those are that's the what I'm familiar with when I taste malt. No. 
Now that I'm starting to learn about the profiles of Japanese whiskey, I get it. That specific incense and fruit blend is what I'm looking for now on the nose of Japanese whiskeys. And now I've learned to identify it, which is really cool. This Yamazaki specifically has just a huge, huge nose. So on the palate, the first thing I got were, again, berries, berries, berries. Dried stone fruit are right up there. Um, and then I was supposed to find raspberry. I, I read a lot of notes and reviews saying that you would get the raspberry. It took me quite a while to find it. Um, I think it's because I was focusing so much on those flavors from the cask, which is very upfront, which is very surprising to me because typically I will taste the malts coming forward and taking over and the cask comes later, but it's quite the opposite with this one, which is really cool. Um, but then there it is. It settles in along with soft oak, kind of like mid palate. And then suddenly I'm getting a big burst of apricot and peach coming through. Very little spice is left. Um, and then I'm, I, I take my sip and I remember it was about the fourth go around that I did with this. So, um, I'm thinking, where is the vanilla? I'm wondering, oh, boom, there's the vanilla in the finish. Holy smokes. I don't know how they achieved this giant vanilla boom. It's like vanilla perfume, but not in a bad way, like an edible vanilla perfume. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm. Um, right through the finish. And then it gives you that sweetness that you need because I'm also wondering where was that sweetness. And then you get that light spice and then the heat softens. So really just a very interesting and absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous whiskey. Um, if you're not familiar with tasting and nosing whiskeys, I still think you would get a lot of interest out of this, even if you didn't care for it. Um, and that's usually a really in good indication for me of whiskey, that you can I easily identify flavors, even if you don't care for it. Um, so why have I paired this Yamazaki 12-year with the Smashing Pumpkins? Well, just like with whiskey, music is the sum of all parts even if there is one dominating force, the distiller or the front man. When recording Siamese Dreams, Billy Corrigan was relentless in his pursuit of the sound that he was hearing in his head. He would do 16-hour days for weeks at a time while recording this album. He ultimately played all of the guitar and bass parts on the album. Some tracks feature up to 100 compressed guitar parts. Corrigan reportedly worked on a 30-second long segment, sometimes for days. Chamberlain, meanwhile, would disappear on benders, but still turned up somehow just to play his parts, and Corgan would often force him to play drums until his hand bled, hands bled, but his contribution was vital. Much like the early distillers of the House of Suntory attempting to make the first Scotch-style whiskey in Japan in completely unknown conditions. Shinjiro Tori knew what he wanted to achieve. He could smell it, he could taste it, and he already somehow knew it, but actually producing it was a hell of a feat. Both parties release an indelible contribution to the world of music and whiskey alike. And I don't know where Japanese whiskey would be without Suntory and where early 90s alt-rock would be without the Smashing Pumpkins. And there you have it. Well done. Bravo. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm so glad that you didn't just taste this once and you <laughs> went back to it and back to it because the reason I love Japanese whiskey so much is that I think it hides a lot of its tricks, a lot of its, a lot of what it has to offer. 
I mean, really with any whiskey in general, but I feel like I've gotten it more with Japanese whiskey where with time, all of those little treats and nuances will be will be coming out and you can appreciate everything it has to offer. And when you said that, bam, vanilla, like the last thing. Yeah. Yeah. Freaking amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I actually was almost sorry I didn't choose this whiskey to go with David Bowie, Bowie or with the discussion for Labyrinth because it's got I kept like wanting to use the word magic, magic, magic. And yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I have, I would say a very good palate. I would say I have an educated palate for whiskey. So I, um, it's not often that I'm super wowed. It's not often that I'm surprised whether it's good or bad. I'm usually able to kind of hit what I should be hitting. So, I mean, and I'm sure anybody that tastes whiskey often for work or for pleasure feels that way. It's like, oh yeah, this is something like really unusual. Um, and I, I agree with you. Japanese whiskey is something very different and not just for its flavor, but it does take it's it's one of those products where every time you drink it, it tastes different. It's to simplify, you know, just like I, I think with anything, you're going to get something different out of it. Like when you hear music that has layers, you know, it's like, oh, man, or you watch Matt, you and I were talking about Avengers Endgame, you know? Yeah. It's like, I need to see it again to process, because there was so much going on, I missed yeah. stuff. I need to go back again. I, I agree with that one, yeah. yeah. Totally feel like that with Japanese whiskey. This one in particular, the cask and the those um, typical whiskey notes were, were flip-flopped for me and it was so unexpected i and maybe it's because i was really focusing on this cask so much you know we'll see but i did a total of eight tastings so eight different times and i try to do them at least three days apart and i tried really hard to replicate my conditions it's not mm -hmm. always possible but no, i try to make no. sure it was before i ate since the first time i did it was before i ate i cleansed my palate really well so i got a lot of continuity but just things would jump out, and I just found it just so interesting. And it's a hundred percent fact because the bottle that I've been nursing, I've had for three years, and I purchased it back when, like you said, it was fifty-five, sixty dollars a bottle, plus my employee discount that I got. So oh, you know, I, yeah, I got a steal. <laughs> and I think it was, I think it was a um, friend of the show, Scotch Trooper, I believe, posted something today on Instagram saying that he found a bottle for $205, which lends what? to what, what you were saying before. Yeah. He put something in his stories about that. That's and I was like, cheapest, Jesus. I know. It's the cheapest I could find was $199. Um, and that's without VAT and shipping. Yeah. And I remember when the 18 year was about $200. And now that's probably $600, $700. Yeah, yeah. Which is crazy. Yep. yep. Hey guys, I want to tell you about my new friends, Liquid Death. Did you know that the average aluminum can contains over 70% re recycled material and the average plastic bottle contains only 3%? Aluminum is actually infinitely recyclable. I didn't know that, but it's true. Uh, cool fact, all of the aluminum produced since 1888, over 75% of it is still in current use. That's just nuts. When plastic bottles are recycled, the plastic is such low quality that it can't be made into new bottles. That's dumb. The material is usually sold to China to make cheap carpets and textiles, and a lot of that ends up in landfills. Sadly, if plastic production isn't curbed, plastic pollution will outweigh fish pound per pound by 2050. So we should all be murdering our thirst. 
with 100% mountain water from the Alps. And that's exactly what liquid death does. But how does it work, you ask? Well, let me tell you. Our proprietary thirst murdering, says liquid death, process begins with forming a rope of veins that will wrap around your thirst's head and strangle it. Once liquid death reaches your thirst brain, all of your thirst memories will be replaced with repeating loops of its own head imploding. Damn. Which is exactly what happens next by causing your thirst head to implode and its brain to squirt out of its ears. I mean, that sounds like it would work. So a little bit about the company. It was a handful of people that started liquid death with the diabolical plan to completely obliterate bottled water marketing cliches by taking the world's healthiest beverage, mountain water, and making it just as funny and stupid and entertaining as the unhealthy brands across energy drinks, soda, and beer. Also, plastic water bottles are a complete shift, but aluminum cans are far and away the most sustainable beverage container by virtually every measure. So, my friends, let me tell you, we all need to start murdering our thirst with liquid death mountain water. It is 100% mountain water from the Alps, truly, not like what is in most of those um, water bottles. It's usually tap water or who knows what. Um, And the cans are freaking cool and the name is freaking cool and it's a really awesome cause. I mean, if it's just so easy to grab this aluminum can instead of a plastic bottle and we're still gonna have healthy oceans for our kids and grandkids, then do it. So hashtag death to plastic. And uh, you can find more about Liquid Death on our Instagram page and in our Facebook group. And we thank them for their support of the Metal Rockin' Whiskey Show. Okay, guys, a little bit of music for your listening pleasure. So before we get into this, into the meat of this discussion, what is, I want to know, like, everybody's relationship to Smashing Pumpkins. You know, were you a fan? Are you a fan? Were you a fan early on? Or did it come later? So, Dave, let's start with you. Sure. So I actually became a fan or really started listening to them during the Siamese Dream. Um, and with Disarm and today, I mean, those were big videos, right. On, uh, mm-hmm. MTV. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Melancholy came out and that was it. Um, uh, but after, I'll, I do have to say that I've only followed those two albums really, uh, after that. And that was it. I didn't listen to anything else simply because they went to a different direction. Mm. Uh, very like electronic, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's like very different, the very different uh, direction. Mm-hmm. Matt, what about you? Well, <clears throat> I actually have a cute little story about this. Aww. So, <laughs> yes. So, uh, my next door neighbor growing up is the same age as I was, and we were inseparable growing up. We were hanging out every day, playing basketball, whatever. Um, so as we got a little older, and I guess at the time that melancholy came out i was it was probably 11 or 12 and um 
you know, we were hanging out one night and he had, I guess we would always play Sega, Sega or whatever was the video game at the time, you name it. Maybe N64 at that time was brand new. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're hanging out and as any little brother would do who has an older sister, any mischievous asshole little brother would do. Uh, <laughs> his older sister who's a three, two or three years older than us was, I guess, staying at a friend's house. So we decided to snoop. Because that's what kids that age do, you know? You snoop. You bet. You break in the room and you snoop. So um, <laughs> I don't remember anything else about that except the tre- treasure trove of early 90s uh, <laughs> rock music that she had, uh, CDs and everything. But the two that stood out and the two that we, as 11, 12-year-olds, ended up taking from her room and listening to were um, Throwing Copper by Live and... Uh, Melancholy and Infinite Sadness by Smashing Pumpkins. And this was right around the time the album, I would assume it was right around the time the album was released um, because then that was my basically the beginning of my relationship with MTV and watching music videos around that age as well. And they were everywhere on MTV. I mean, they were playing their, you know, Bullet with Butterfly Wings was playing every other video, it Mm -hmm. seemed like. Um, So that's, and really my relationship up until this episode and researching for this episode really began and ended with that album. Um, and then um, that little song they did for Batman and Robin, which, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, all the girl, you know, at that time I'm 13, 14. So, all, you know, the girls love that song. So you pretend, you know, <laughs> you, <laughs> you pretend to impress, you know, um, so let me, uh, I'm not ashamed to say that, you know, I had a burn copy of that soundtrack, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it really began and ended with that album. So, and I'll get more into that later when we discuss it, but that's it. Well, I, um, remember watching Saturday night live and I was, have always been a huge Saturday night live fan back when I had actual television service. A um, million years ago, and it was their first appearance on Saturday Night Live. And I just remember going, what the hell is this? This is amazing. And I was just ran out the next day, um, got their CD, and it. I actually got Gish. Um, I didn't know that they had another seat. I didn't, I, either they were out or I didn't see it or something. Maybe it wasn't released. I can't remember, but only Gish was there. And, um, I grabbed Gish and I think it was, I believe they were on for Siamese dreams. I'm assuming it was already out, but I don't know. And I, so I really fell in love with Gish and then, but I was like, oh, I'm not hearing that song that I heard on Saturday Night Live. And it took me a while and I finally got a copy of Siamese Dreams and I was just absolutely in love with them. Um, so a little backstory on the band before we talk about uh, the album battles. So um, Billy Corgan, who is the front man uh, of the band, founded the band. Um, he had just broken up with his goth rock band called The Marked. Uh, and was living in, of course, St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, <laughs> and he went back to the city he grew up, which was Chicago. And uh, he took a job in a record store and, you know, got the idea of forming a new band. And he wanted to call it the Smashing Pumpkins. So he met his other bandmates. And um, uh, first he met James Eha, who's a guitar player. And they played as a two-piece. 
um, with Billy on vocals and bass and um, James Eha on guitar. And they were using a drum machine at the time. I would really like to know what that sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Apparently there was the, the first time they played live. Um, there was a, there was, I, I don't know if it was the club owner, the show promoter was like, yeah, I'll, I'll let you guys play again, but you've got to get a drummer enough with this drum machine. But at least, you know, he recognized their talents, which is, is pretty cool. Um, so, uh, so eventually they met Darcy Rett. Retsky bass player and jazz drummer Jimmy Chamberlain, who became their drummer. And uh, they started out by playing music that um, Billy said was kind of like the cure. But it only took a few practices for them to realize that Jimmy Chamberlain had some intense power and was incredibly talented. And they could really take the band to new heights with their sound with uh, Jimmy behind them on drums. So 1989 comes along. They had their song I Am The One on local Chicago label uh, called Limited Potential, if they only knew, really. (laughs) Uh, The single actually sold out, uh, and they released the follow-up, Tristessa, on Sub Pop. And this is a label that has come up many times in conversation. Seriously, Sub Pop. Where the hell would we be without them? No, I don't know. No, nowhere? I don't Who knows? I know, I know. Uh... Shortly after they signed a deal with Caroline Records, who I have never heard of before, they were like a mm. they were like a bridge label. Like yeah. a, they were they were they were like um a, I think they were a division. They were they were a division of a, a larger labor. I can't I can't remember, but they were kind of like one of those bridge. Like bridge. you're not big enough yet, but you're kind of too big for an indie label type situation. Gotcha, okay. gotcha. Um, so 1991, they recorded the debut studio album Gish with producer Butch Vig. Great name. Another um, one. At, Where would we be without, without Butch, Butch Vig? Vig? Very true. There at, would be uh, no Nevermind. Nope. That's true. And uh, this was recorded at Smart Studio in Madison, Wisconsin for the minimal price of 20 grand. That was a lot uh, at the time, though, it for was, a small band like it that. It seems like it was a lot. Yeah, yeah, I was really, I looked it up for I was a debut, really yeah. surprised that for an unknown band that they, but I think it was probably because it was Butch. I mean, at this point, he had our, yeah, he had, yeah, at this point, he was well known. So I mean, I'm Nirvana, assuming. Nirvana's was like, what, 600 bucks or something like that? <laughs> It was a ridiculously small amount of money. Yeah. yeah, I think it was about Butch and not the band, I'm assuming. I agree. I agree. Um, so Corgan, of course, wanted consistency in, in the recording, uh, as we'll see. Uh, so he often played all the instruments except for the drums, which obviously would create tension in the band. Uh, I mean, if you're an uh. artist, yeah, I mean, seriously. I mean, the guy is your leader, obviously, but I mean, talk about stepping on toes. Yeah, hardcore. You, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you don't feel like your bandmate is like, hey, I think you're talented enough, you're not talented enough to play on the album, I'd be, I don't know that I would have stayed. I don't know how they stayed. I would be so incredibly, um, I would just feel really disrespected and mm-hmm. yeah, I'd be fucking pissed. Maybe they were hungry, maybe they just wanted something, you know. I guess, I guess if they feel they have a record deal, but I don't know, still, like it's literally what you do, especially... Yeah, no offense, but if you're a bass player, and he did <laughs> again, no offense, but in, a, in music like this, I'm saying you're not the standout piece of, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's yeah. really fucked up. I'd be even more pissed. 
<laughs> agreed, agreed. So the album Gish became a minor success with the single Rhinoceros getting some radio play. After releasing their next record, or their next recording, Lull, an EP in 1991, the band formally signed with Virgin Records. That I have heard of them. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So they went on tour with uh, our very famous friends, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, as their their classy fans will let you know, by the way, uh, <laughs> as well as Jane's Addiction, Guns N' Roses. Uh, that's a that's a show that that's a show that I would actually see at the time. It's a, a little bit of a, a little bit of everything, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Variety. Jane's was huge at the time, by the way. Like. That oh, yeah. was Jane. That was their the height of them. So that's yeah. a hell of a tour to get thrown. Yeah, on. and ninety one gun, ninety one guns, guns and roses. Well, ninety one guns and ninety one chili peppers. I can still stomach. So I mean, well, that's not yeah. a bad yeah. show. Yeah, I should say yeah, the chili peppers were huge as well too. Like Megan. Yeah. yeah, that that was that was a hot tour to go on. Yeah, right. So it was during this tour actually that uh, guitarist uh, James Ehan and Dartsy. Uh, who had been dating, had a very messy breakup. Jimmy yes. sunk into a deep depression. Well, Jimmy Jimmy sunk into a drug and alcohol addiction and didn't work out so well for Billy. He went into a deep depression. Uh, and it was during this time that they saw that Jimmy was actually recording for the next album. Um, and so at this point in time, grunge was really was in full force. Hmm. Um, and... Uh, the pumpkins were actually lumped into them, which I kind of don't see I, that. I agree, but they right. were—they were considered grunge, which I, was super weird. Yeah, I didn't really. Um, I just don't see that how those two mm -hmm. mesh. Yeah. Uh, but Bill Wade eventually went on to say that we've graduated now from the next Jane's Addiction to the next Nirvana, and now we're the next Pearl Jam. Ouch. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. As this happens with a lot of bands that have a unique sound, I don't think anybody knew where to put them. And really, alt-rock didn't come to be a term, I don't think, until the mid to later 90s, right. when you heard it more being called alt-rock, alternative rock. I mean, they had to, they, they're not grunge at all. They're not, I don't think they have anything to do with Jane's Addiction, Nirvana, or Pearl Jam, to be completely honest. Um, I would put them, well... We're depending on what album you're talking about, but at this time in their career, I'd put them closer to metal, you know, or hard I rock. Would too. I would yeah, too. I mean, there's a lot of metal in their early sound. Um, so late '92, they went back into the studio again with Butch Vig as producer. So, <laughs> and once again, as I said in my whiskey tasting, Billy wants to play most of the instruments himself, and apparently this was well supported by Butch Vig. I think the two of them had a little bit of a mind meld. And I think Damn. that, well, Butch Vig was also said to be very obsessive back then as well. Um, and I think the two of them kind of understood each other, which made it even worse for the other band members because no one right. was really advocating for them. And so that would suck. Um, so tension is rising even greater in the band. And in the press, Billy Corgan is being portrayed as a tyrant. 
Um, his depression got so bad that he was contemplating suicide. And I think he wrote about 50 or 60 songs at the time. And this recording would turn out to be Siamese Dreams. It took over four months to complete and had a very large budget, over $250,000. That is nuts for a band of their stature at the time. I don't, I, I can't imagine how the label okayed this. I don't know if there was some type of change in their royalties or i don't know what but i well, the ex- wow the expectations were extremely high from everybody sure but i so still i think maybe they just rode that drop... no, I yeah, don't know. they don't know i'm just saying maybe yeah. they rode that wave i don't know but I that's still a lot that's way that's, still, that's still a lot of money yep. not so not so who knows you know on the back end what happened but Thank God, Siamese Dreams debuts at number 10 on the charts and sold over 4 million copies in the U.S. alone. So there's your money back, mofos. Um, So at this point, they're becoming more and more mainstream, and their peers are beginning to resent them. And the shit-talking gets absolutely nuts. Um, (laughs) It's basically the indie world... um, And they're just, I I think they're talking mad shit out of resentment. But it was very, very strange. I read so many things, so many accounts. I saw a bunch of interviews. Like, people were shitting off. I don't, like, there were some bands around the time, some of their peers, that were being interviewed. And for no reason, they would just be like, oh, yeah, by the way, Smashing Pumpkin sucks. Like, (laughs) whoa. And I thought, okay, well, maybe Billy Corgan really is a complete dickhead and he's a, he's a dick to everybody. And, but they were not social people, this band. They weren't socializing with other bands. There weren't, I couldn't find any reports of interactions. I don't know what was going on, but it's very bizarre. Um, mm. Someone even referred to them as Ario Speedwagon. Like, dude, Ario Speedwagon is still being played on the radio to this day. I mean, you can say all you want about it, but it's right. just the test of time. Your band should be so lucky. And exactly. I can't remember I can't remember who it was, which should tell you something <laughs> that their band did not uh, stand the test of time. But, I mean, if you're going to be, you know, called the next Ario Speedwagon, oh, well, that's not so bad in my opinion. Right. Whatever, dude. In hindsight, absolutely not. <laughs> Seriously. True that. Um, so in 94, Virgin released a B-side compilation, um, and it charted even higher, which was completely nuts. So the band is just huge at this point, and they're considered commercial, which is never a good thing for bands like this. It is not. And rolling into 1995, uh, Corgan, as Sailor said, has approximately five dozen songs written, ready to record. Uh, the band did enter the studio again and put 28 of these songs into an album which Corgan would describe as Pink Floyd's The Wall for Generation X. And however you feel about this album, I think it's a fair comparison, uh, considering totally. the popularity and just the sh- overall structure of the album. I think it's a great comparison. And the lyrical content, I would say, as and well. And the content, yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, he's writing about what I just spoke about. He actually yeah. is responding in these songs to that to his peers, to the um, media, and to his listeners. It is unbelievable. I would, mm. I think that's such a great um, way to describe it, especially for people that don't know the wall for Generation X. So perfect. Yeah, I mean, as we'll see, you know, Corgan has his finger on the pulse of a lot of different things going on. So um, the album would be titled Melancholy in the Infinite Sadness. 
An epic double album was released on October 23rd, 1995, and it became an incredible smash success. Yeah. It debuted at number one, spawned six hit singles, including the mega hits Bullet with Butterfly Wings, 1979, and Tonight Tonight. Garnered the band seven Grammy nominations, including Album of the Year. Damn. Uh, yeah, I mean, we go on to sell well over 30 million copies worldwide. Um, the following year, 1996, proved to be the biggest year for the band as they embarked on an extended world tour in support of Melancholy. And as I said before in my little personal story, heavy, heavy, heavy rotation on MTV uh, made them one of the biggest acts in the world. Uh, and I think three, you know, just from my personal experience, what I remember, I think three heavies is actually an understatement because they were totally. all over the place. Oh, yeah. You can <laughs> turn on MTV without, I think at the time it was Alana Morissette's You Oughta Know. Yeah, if memory movie. serves. Yeah. Well, the song that specific song, that, that video. Song, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it was um 1979 and Tonight Tonight and Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Yep. And then some yeah. there was some oh uh what's that chick? What if God was one of us? What's her face? That song, um, remember that song? Is it Amy Grant, is that her name? No, that's oh, Amy Grant. No, that's another one. Uh oh. Jewel, not Jewel. I don't Jewel. know. Is it Lisa, of, Lisa Loeb? No. No. Mm-hmm. One of these. Two. Anyway, one um, of them. Yeah, <laughs> one of them. And I think it was yeah. uh, those were all someone can check, fact check me on this. I believe they were all at the same time. And I remember mm-hmm. being I, I would have what was I doing? Was I in grad school? or something? I can't remember where I, I was doing something where I was sitting at a desk a lot and um, I was writing a lot. It might have been my thesis. Um, and I would have I always have TV on in the background when I write. And I would have MTV on. And I just remember every time the Smash <laughs> Pumpkins came on, I was like, thank God, because I'm so sick of hearing what if God was one. And, you know, you ought to know. Oh, oh I God. couldn't take Never. it. So I would just be so excited. when, the, <laughs> Even though I got sick of them, too. But, yeah, they were you just couldn't turn on the radio without hearing these songs. It was it was pretty insane. Yeah, yeah. And at this time, of course, we get Corgan's new look, his iconic <laughs> look with the shaved head and the wearing all black clothes. Um, I think it was actually Bullet with Butterfly Wings was the last video they did where he actually had the the long it's hair. It's his Matrix look. It's his Matrix look, yes. I call exactly. it the Matrix look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you're a Buffy, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, where my nerds at, um, and you remember the episode The Gentleman, I felt like he looked very much like The Gentleman. That's my favorite episode of all time of Buffy. It is the only the only Buffy that I will ever acknowledge is the movie. I'm Fuck sorry. The movie. The movie was garbage. <laughs> the show epic. Chrissy Swanson is my Buffy. I'm sorry. I don't care. No way. Are you? No. You didn't watch the show, did you? I didn't have to. Yes, you do. To. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Ugh, let's I never saw, I never saw either. So, yeah, okay. This is what we're going to do. We're going to watch the movie, and I'm going to make you watch. I'm going to give you 12 episodes of The Vampire Slayer to watch. And I guarantee you, you're going to be like, oh. all right, I'll do it. I have two, I have, you know, Chrissy Swanson aside, I'll have two other words that makes the movie better. Paul Rubens. No, I have two other, look, I'm the biggest Pee Wee fan on the planet, you know it, but <laughs> I have two other words, Joss Whedon. So, um, oh my suck God. it. There you go. Anyway. All right, challenge accepted. <laughs> uh, however, as with any good year in any band, as we've seen before so many times, these successful times are not without controversy and not without things happening. During a concert in Dublin, a fan was actually crushed to death. 
apparently from a mosh pit, which led Corgan to claim that moshing's time had come and gone. Tragic indeed in so many different ways. No, dude, no. Nah, he's wrong. He's wrong. I'm sorry, but, you know, it's sad, but... No, no. Shit like that happens, man, unfortunately. Yeah, Yeah, and actually, more tragedy struck. So on uh, July 11th, 96, uh, the touring keyboardist Jonathan Melvin passed after ODing on heroin in a New York hotel room. He'd actually been with uh, drummer... Uh, Jimmy Chamberlain, who actually, well, he survived, uh, but was later arrested for drug possession. Um, so this is interesting here. The band chose to continue their their uh, successful tour with replacements, but later on, Corgan oh, yeah. came to acknowledge that it was a huge mistake for the band's career uh, and possibly the biggest mistake that ever made, um, claiming that their music and their reputation uh, it hurt their music and their reputation, which I could kind of see that. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the band in a number of interviews would state that Melancholy was the last traditional Pumpkins album. Um, they, they agreed that playing rock was getting stale. Um, I could Ugh. disagree with that. and yeah. But I could agree with what he said, that that's the last traditional album, obviously. Yeah, I agree. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I totally agree. And I remember this all going down. Um, I think they were supposed to play a Lollapalooza. God, I wish I had a better memory back when I used to smoke pot and drink a lot. Um, And when I was a kid and I'm now I'm old and can't remember. I can't remember if I saw them at Lollapalooza or not, frankly. And Lollapalooza is like one of those. There's so many bands and so many things happening. And if you go, I used to go to them each year and I would go to a few of them. And it was just, how do you remember that? The, you know, 20 years later, I don't know. Maybe exactly. some people do. It, yeah. It's, it's, and I'm not someone that keeps like the tickets or all that shit. I, w- I, w- I really wish I did. Um, I do remember though hearing about this and going, oh, I wonder if they're going to cancel Lollapalooza or whatever it was I was going to see them at. And because I had seen them for Siamese Dreams. I saw, I saw them live. Um, and I thought, oh, that's tragic. And we were all like, yeah, they're probably going to cancel, at least for a while, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, here's the other thing. I get it, too. Like, look, you know, these two had drug problems for a very long time. It was plaguing the band a lot. Um, you know, when, when they could get Jimmy, like, hooked, he... he like, you know, like on, he'd be there, he'd play really well, but you know, he, it was very, very difficult to get him, um, to stay focused and to stay sober enough to play and to be consistent with showing up and all of that. And that's really fucking hard because at this point, well, at any point your band is a business, you know, if you are making commitments to play shows, you know, people have bought these tickets and fans want to see you. That's a really tough choice to make. Um, do you cancel and disappoint all of your fans? Um, and I hate to say it, but, you know, it's not the front man that died. And I know that sounds fucked up, but it is just a fact, you know. Yeah. Um, if it was a band that was, like, heavily relied on keyboards, uh, I don't know if it was Van Halen, maybe, <laughs> you know. Or, like, Europe, jump Europe period, Or Europe, yeah. 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 <laughs> but again, you know, it's, ugh, I think... Probably, I have to say, if if Jimmy hadn't been arrested, then probably it would have been really different. But um, 
replacing both of them, I think, looked just cold and shitty. But I think if fans, you know, now who we've all grown up would probably go, you know, at the time it seemed fucked up because we're all emotional kids. But now you look at it like they kind of had to go on because they had commitments. I I get that. Yeah. And they're on top. I mean, they're. I know. I get it. The show must go on, right? I think they should have taken a short hiatus maybe and canceled like. Six shows and then said, "Okay, we've mourned." Yeah, <laughs> maybe that. that yeah. yeah, maybe that would have, and we'll reschedule those shows at a later time or something like that. Um, I don't know. Who knows? You know what I mean? You got to do what you got to do at the time. Um, so the band goes on to win a Grammy in 1998 for the best hard rock performance for the song "The End Is the Beginning Is the End." Um, for like you said, <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Batman and Robin soundtrack. Fuck that stupid movie <laughs> and that stupid song. Hey, and that's another. That's a soundtrack that had a lot of songs in rotation I on MTV. On MTV, there were a lot of videos from that soundtrack, including including that one. Yeah. I do too. Fuck all of it. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the song was, <clears throat> let's say. Yeah, it was more electronica than it was rock, really. Um, and again, it's funny because, you know, they make the statement like, you know, rock is getting stale. Well, are they saying rock is getting stale or rather them playing rock is getting stale? Yeah. I looked up that quote several times and it's unclear. Um, but again, they're young. You're young and angsty and you're like, yeah, man, this sucks. This is stupid. I hate it. This is bullshit. You know, at the end of uh, Melancholy, you can start to hear that uh, that electronic yeah. uh, spaciness. I like to call it, it spaciness. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking like this space rock type stuff. Yeah. It started seeping in. And so yeah. you started kind of seeing that already. And I'm not sure if it was during this time uh, before Batman and Robin came out, but uh, there was a Lost Highway. Were they on the Lost Highway soundtrack? Yes, they were. Yeah, yeah. they were. Yeah, and yeah, they had yeah, a yeah. different, they had like, I think it's called The Eye, or I don't forget what it was called, yeah, but they had yeah. another song. Yes. And that's when they yes. really, you could, you could hear that, that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about and, that. Uh, so that's interesting that. You know, we're starting to see that through <laughs> these soundtracks. You know what I mean? And yeah. I don't think the I don't think they were a full length. You know, at the time that they they hadn't released anything at that time. Here's something interesting: since you both are too young to have been there at the time, this was not unusual because I re- distinctly remember my group of friends in the mid '90s. We started to split. So those of us who were metalheads. You know, we got into the grunge and alt rock because it was similar enough. It was, you know, there was, there was, it was rock, you know. And then as it started to progress through the mid 90s, I would say like 95 to 97, the split started to happen. Some people went off to the, um, what did we call it at the time? Techno music thing happened, you know, and it was rockers back then were doing it too. They were listening to that stuff too, and they were going to raves and all that shit. We didn't mm-hmm. have such split, you know, things weren't so segregated as they are now, I think. And so you kind of saw, I kind of saw, started to see that split. So like some of my friends would be like, oh yeah, like let's go to this thing tonight. It's this DJ. And I'm like, okay, I'll go. But then I'd be like, oh, yeah, let's go see this band, this local band play. And they didn't want to go anymore, you know, and and that split started to happen. So I think you'll hear a lot of bands kind of put one foot in each side 
at the time kind of of the road and you go one way or the other really you know that, that's actually the same thing that i've always said that before that time like here you mentioned rock and roll was just everywhere uh rock was everywhere and the whole teeny bopper thing was kind of mixed in mm-hmm. but it wasn't it hadn't taken over yet and then during this time, that's when you start seeing everything just taking over. They started to take over, and things just kind of started changing. And it became everything really just what I call like normie status, how we just have it now, <laughs> where they're like, oh, you're a rocker, huh? Like, you know, like it's that yeah. thing now yeah. where they kind of they just split off already at this point. You know what I mean? So I, I know exactly what you're talking about that time. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's crazy because you could say that alt rock and grunge – kind of brought maybe the the metalheads and the punk rockers together as we've discussed for sure for sure one genre again no again hang on again because thrash was the metalheads and the punk rockers together we're talking a decade a decade okay so you should say so So like again again yes Yes. again yes Mm -hmm. okay and so it's and that's a great point because it's cyclical because then you're saying mid 90s late 90s it's splitting again yes it's split again and it really never came back no, the rockers, the yeah. rockers, and what would be electronica synthwave now, synthwave, yeah. darkwave, and you, you, the the people, especially my age, who listen to synthwave and darkwave, they they are old. They will often be old rockers at the very least, if not old metalheads. Yeah. But there was a preference, there was a taste split. I think you know a preference split that happened, and um, I remember going to see Delight, uh, their first <laughs> album. I don't know even what year it was, but it was all, we were, it was like my rocker dudes who like always looked down at the floor and, you know, didn't say much and were total thrash heads and still had hair down to their back, middle of their back were, you know, jamming out to delight. And like a few days before we had gone and seen, I don't know, croak. I don't know. I don't know what we seen some thrash. I don't know. (laughs) And, And then it just, it just separated completely. But it's, it's funny because, and this is one of the things I respect about the Smashing Pumpkins, even though I don't care for their music later on, I do respect that they kind of went their own way and they took a stand on the type of music that ultimately they wanted to play. And good for them because it's fucking art, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, and this is the point where it's happening. So uh, the their next album so okay they they had done the stupid batman and robin shit and then (laughs) their next album was adore which was released in 1998 now there's the huge departure there's the jump Uh, off the cliff oh Mm -hmm. totally and uh yes (laughs) so good it's perfect Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and then in 2000, they reunited with Jimmy Chamberlain and released Machina, The Machines of God. Um, however, the original lineup that was reunited was short-lived because um, bassist uh, Repsky, Darcy, she left the band during the recording. And um, it was said that she would lock herself in the bathroom often, um, throwing fits because she couldn't play her own instruments well. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. they replaced her with former whole basis, uh, uh, <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> uh, Melissa, what's her face? Just um, Melissa. Yeah. <laughs> just just do Melissa. Melissa. Dude, change your fucking name, man. Come on. Um, so <laughs> this would be Look. the end of the road for a while, though. 
Uh, <laughs> so Corgan announced that the band was breaking up and uh, the tour for Machina would be the end. Um, but they got back together in 2005. And um, by 2008, they released the album Zeitgeist, which was welcomed with very mixed reviews. No I surprise. <laughs> no surprise, but I think it's kind of shitty, to be honest. We're so far from their last album. If you just take that album and listen to it That's musically, true. yeah, I don't, I wouldn't, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to buy it. But it is, they are very, Billy Corgan, like him or not, is ridiculously talented. He's so talented. He's yep. so yep. good at doing concept out. And I did not find this word related to him often. He he's he does concept albums. And we've talked about this on the show before where you know that these tracks were put on this album in order for a very specific reason. And he's very, very good at that. So I happen to think this album is is incredible musically. I don't like well, he it for he, pumpkins, he, but even though he compared Melancholy to The Wall, which is, you know, to me, The Wall is the concept album of all concept albums. Yeah. But um, even he wouldn't call it a concept album because I don't think he was in love with the term. And I don't think he wanted to pigeonhole it so much. Sure. Yeah. He called it. But I just think I of, know, yeah. but he that's his that's his. That's name. him. Yeah. That's and his, I yeah, wish he would. Exactly. Embrace, well, who cares? It's just a term. But yeah. Um, so, uh, all right. So then where are we at? Zeitgeist happens. So then 2009, 2014, um, they uh, tried to do a project titled Tear Garden by Kaleidoscope. The, pro- the project was never completed. Um, they only did 34 of 44 songs and released them on two separate albums, 2012's Oceana and 2014's Moment to an Elegy. Hey, God uh, bless him. I mean, he's still trying to do dude, these yeah. Seriously. Huge, these epic huge mass- pro- yeah. yeah. Only 34 of 44, huh? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Um, so in 2018, uh, original members Eha and Chamberlain back in the band they released shiny and oh so bright volume one um and it's the band's 10th studio album and that got very positive reviews i I think i me too and again like i can appreciate music for what it is and not and maybe i wouldn't buy it maybe not going to listen to it all the time maybe it doesn't sound like the band i used to know and love um if it's still good um, but I thought it was really, really interesting, and I really liked it. And I think if these critics would go back, um, there's a really interesting article that I just want to bring up before we take a break um, that I will put a link to this in the show notes. This is from Billboard magazine. Um, really, really cool article about uh, it's so they wrote it when so last year, Siamese Dreams turned 25. And so they kind of did a look back. And they really appreciated the album for the epic masterpiece and really game changer at that time in alt music was. And so um, I really appreciated that. And I thought I think that it's time for the critics to go back and take a look and remove whatever they think about Billy Corgan from the mix and just kind of let the music stand on its own merits and his talent, you know, on it on its own merits. So. um, So, yeah, so. We are about to do a battle now that we've kind of discussed the band and the backstory. But first, we're going to take a break and um, you're going to listen to some music and we'll be right back. The world is a vampire. Sent to 
We are back, so now it's time to start the battle, mother effers. Yeah. Let's yeah, let's do, do this. Let's start <clears throat> with Gish. <laughs> 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 That's not a very metal sound <laughs> at all. Doesn't okay, <laughs> doesn't matter. So, uh, like we said previously, Gish was released in May of 1991, um, and uh, it was not a commercial success necessarily when it was released, but um, it was uh, after Siamese Dreams came out. Um, so the standout, I think, really the standout, there's two standout tracks on this, which is I Am One and mm-hmm. um, uh, Tristessa. For sure. So, um, so what do you guys think of this album? Dave, you want to go first? Sure. Um, So I think um, there are a lot of like this, this metallic tone that I really liked, uh, which I think uh, Billy kind of refined and sharpened as the albums went on. But that's when I started kind of, you can hear at the beginning of that, that really badass tone he has. Um, you know what? I've kind of felt like I had a little bit of some punk vibes going on to it, just so the way it was very loose. It wasn't like super structured. I felt, um, and they were always experimenting with sound. So even in this album, there's a lot of it's like very noisy, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that's pretty cool. I like to hear stuff like that. Um, and without us knowing at that time, it kind of gave us more of an idea of what what to expect from them, what kind of sounds they might come in the future with the, the next few albums after that. Mm-hmm. Well, I came into this with virgin ears on this album. This is an album that I never heard of, that I never heard before. I should say I've really? heard of it. I had never heard before. Hmm. I had not heard, and this is a rarity now in this, our 60, what will be 64, 65, I had not heard one song from this album before Damn. I had listened to it. Yes. That's very hard to do. Especially That's for impressive, music as I listen to. Yes. <laughs> That's so crazy. This, this, this may be a first. Um, so this is not the Smashing Pumpkins that I know. Um, as I said, my little personal story with Melancholy. But uh, this starts off with a lot of promise. And halfway through, I'm just falling asleep. Because... Ooh. Because I can, I will say this, and I really don't want to dive into the other albums yet, but I have to do this comparison real quick, is that I think the slower songs, the lower-tempoed songs on the later albums kept me interested because they were playing with different sort of, um, you know, he was doing some sort of different vocal stuff, and they were playing with different tones and, and moods and everything. And I think that the slower songs on this, the lower-tempo stuff, it just kind of... It's a snooze fest for me. It starts off hot, fizzles and gasps. Um, the word that I like to use uh, was incongruous. I think it wasn't very, it wasn't, there were a lot of different things that didn't fit together for me on this album. Uh, although that they said that there was a common theme, it just wasn't, it didn't fit together for me as a great album from top to bottom. 
I'm the One's a great song. Uh, Siva's a great song. Tristessa's a great song. But there's just a lot of nothing on this album. It was a little disappointing to me, actually, um, considering the debut albums of a lot of what you call their contemporaries. Um, I felt that there's a lot of great things there, but it just doesn't work to me for me as an album altogether, unfortunately. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Mm. Um. <laughs> so I, I, it, it's interesting because you are looking, you, you're listening to this album after knowing the band for so long and hearing what they would become. And correct, I heard this album first. Um. Well, I mean, I heard a song first off of Siamese Dreams, but then bought this album and I fell in love with it because at the time it was very, it was a very interesting album it was very different. It was very unique sounding to what was out there. Um, Corgan's what he did with the guitars, I thought was, it was really, it was a bit, it was, it was unique in the way that the production that they had. So there were, there were some bands out there doing similar guitar sounds and, and tuning and such, but not with the production. Right. Um, so I, I, I have a really soft spot in my heart, um, over this album because I think it's like the seed that's starting to sprout and, you know, it's, it's, it's tiny, but it looks, it's, you can, I don't know. It's still interesting and cute and, there's a train going by. <laughs> yeah, I live by the tracks. <laughs> okay. Can't really stop that, can you? No. <laughs> Excuse no. me, good sir. Can you please change the timing of your train? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I don't know. I think this is a fucking cool album. I think it's a an awesome snapshot into that period of time in alternative music coming from goth you know goth rock was kind of like punks and metalheads but they were chill you know yeah, it, yeah. i don't know how else you would describe that or that period of time of goth rock it was it was they were very confused with themselves i think because they also kind of um straddled the are we do we want to go into the like electronica goth sound mm-hmm. or do we want to go to the rock goth you know is yeah. it Marilyn Manson or is it I don't you know I don't know um Nine Inch Nails is a good example of that in a way you know um so I don't know I I really have a lot of respect for this album I really really do I I agree with you 100% from an historical standpoint I mean obviously this coming out at that time would have been everything that you said it was uh but I can only compare it to what we're comparing it to tonight and uh doesn't set the bar for me unfortunately Alrighty then Hmm. Well, let's move on then, shall we? We shall. Let's move on to Siamese Dream. I say dreams sometimes, but it's not plural. It is actually singular. So, pardonnez-moi. This album was released in July of 93, and this came out on Virgin Records. Um, We talked about the hellacious recording period. Um, I guess they all had nervous breakdowns recording this. Um, 
So big budget, as we said, lots and lots of time went into this. I think that Corrigan really pushed himself emotionally and mentally on this album. It reminds me of, um, I know this is going to sound really weird, but let me explain before everybody freaks out. It kind of reminds me of Pet Sounds a little bit. Where, <laughs> wow, <laughs> by the only way I'm going to correlate these is by allowing someone to completely, completely just fucking lose their minds in the studio and trust their genius. Yeah. Um, you know, Pet Sounds at the time was a flop and now it's considered like one of the best albums recorded of all times right. or something. Right? right. Um, and you know, that's not the case with this. This was a, this was a critical hit. Um, but that, that's the only relation it just kept coming to mind. Um, so yeah, so Corgan actually had a full on nervous breakdown and started started seeing a therapist. But then you have Butch Vig, who I think, you know, unfortunately was like the devil on his shoulder, like, yeah, go ahead and spend six weeks on that two second guitar riff, man. Get it right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so to me, Cherub Rock is all you need to say about this album. Like yeah. When I heard Cherub Rock, I was like, holy fuck, what is this? I want more of it, and I want more of it now. Um, and Mayonnaise is like, I think Mayonnaise is maybe one of the best alt-rock songs ever written. That's a great song. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the those are the two really big. I mean, I think you have. I mean, you you know you have so many hits on this album. Yeah. Um, I also love Silver Fuck. Um, that's a great song too, which wasn't a big hit. Um, and uh, what's the other one? Um, Luna also. It just Luna's it, outstanding. Right, mm-hmm. Luna's fucking yeah. amazing. But you know, Cherub Rock. I know that it's considered so. I don't know, like mainstream. That's not, was not, it's, that's actually not true. Cherub Rock, just because it became so popular does not make it mainstream. You know, something can be popular in a mainstream audience and it does not make the product itself mainstream. It was a very alternative sound at the time. It was a very unique sound. It was very not really what was out there on the radio at the time or on MTV. Um, So this album, to me, uh, has it all. Uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) it was considered a grunge album at the time. And uh, Rolling Stone even ranked it as like 12th greatest grunge albums of all time. And especially if you listen to it now, what in the fuck does it have to do with grunge? (laughs) I don't know. Rolling Stone doesn't really know what they're talking about. Exactly. (laughs) Well, do they ever? No. <laughs> They're the ones that said Pet Sounds was a piece of garbage when it came out, speaking of Pet Sounds. So. It's fucking stupid. Fuck them. Anyway. Uh, so, Agreed. yeah, to the listeners out there, I'm actually making the same face and hand gestures as I was last week when we were talking about Dirt. Because um, if, if you don't think that this album is one of the best in the 90s, you got something go fucking wrong fuck with yourself. you. Go fuck yourself. Because <laughs> this is, when you talk about time and place musicality lyrics uh production quality it doesn't get much better it just doesn't um you know corgan he might be a tyrant in the studio mr overdubs but the guy has maybe one of the best ears in music i would i would go on a limb and say that 
at least from my music experience, I think he's one of the, those geniuses, um, music geniuses. And I would say bravo to them as a group, albeit it was a very tenuous time recording this album. A uh, ton of pressure on them. They put a ton of pressure on themselves recording this album, but they delivered, and they delivered tenfold, in my opinion. Uh, Sailor, you named some of the songs. Uh, Disarm is... I mean, it's maybe my favorite pumpkin song. And I think it it's a little tease as to what's to come on their next album. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even today, uh, the song today, uh, oh. a little tease. Chara Brock, like you mentioned, amazing. Oh. Uh, Geek USA. I mean, if you, I mean, if you don't, if you're, not, if you're a fan of this period of rock music and you don't love this album, I don't know what the fuck's wrong with you. You've got, you, you were, say. you were dropped on your head as a baby. You need to go yeah. have a discussion with the people who raised you and sit them down and face them and say, I need to hear about the time that I was dropped on my head because there's a problem now with my memory and my taste. I agree. <laughs> and, and they should go back and listen to Siamese Dream. I mean, what's insane about it is it's, it, I'm telling you, he captured that amazing badass tone that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. That it has, it's almost, it's like fuzzy, metallic, almost like in this desert rock, psychedelic, uh, what is it? Like, like almost stoner rock sort yeah, of yeah, vibe. Yeah, yeah, yep. like, yeah. Like a stoner fuzz. It's so badass. Yeah. That I think for me, as, uh, as a guitarist and, and try, you know, playing post rock and post metal, Wanting to try to achieve that tone, I can't fucking figure it can't out. Can't do it. I, it's I because can't. it's overdubbing. It's because yeah. so I asked someone about this, and um, I have a friend of mine who actually makes guitar pedals, and he is yeah. an incredible guitar player. And a friend of mine who is a really talented um, recording producer and mixer, and he said the only way really to achieve that sound. I mean, pedals now, you know. If, if you go to live music, you'll probably see a guitar player, depending on the type of music, have this big wooden board or something in front of him. And there's all these different pedals attached to it. Pedal board, yeah. And, and yeah, there's a lot you can do with a pedal board. There, there's a lot you can do live now. But um, a lot of that sound, and, and Butch Vig spoke about this several times, was, for, for example, on one song, um, uh, Soma contains 40 overdubbed guitar parts. <laughs> so you're going to play with fuzz. You're going to play clean. You're going to play down tune. You're, and you just play the same fucking series of notes. And then you dub it up. You overdub. I mean, you're going to get some. But to do it and not sound like a mess. Right. Like who That's the fuck? Exactly. Yeah. Who yeah. can even and then somehow sort of achieve that live? I don't fucking know. I yeah. mean, it's just it's also him being um, a conductor and yeah. saying, okay, so I play this on guitar. And it, they did not play traditional lead rhythm and bass. So to get that sound, you needed everyone to try to replicate that overdub sound. Yep. So yeah. he orchestrated how and what they played, which I find yeah. that incredibly interesting. He's a madman, but he yeah. an work, absolute madman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, mean, I saw there, there was a video on YouTube that he, he talked about some of the things that he does to compensate for that live and is very interesting. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's why you're, you guys, that makes more sense now why it's kind of difficult to achieve. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think it's got a really nice dose of, of heavier, you know, I would say metal songs, even though, um, 
some nice softer material. But I think for me, the stand-ups were the same ones you guys mentioned. Sherba Brock, Quiet was the opposite, right? Quiet was just yeah. awesome. <laughs> uh, today, Disarm, beautiful. Geek USA, Soma, and Luna. Luna was just... Luna's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. yeah. 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 Um, I think that, it, again... It, there's so many factors that happened here. One, what are the chances that you actually get a band that's going to, I know they weren't okay with how it went down, but they let him do it. That's one factor, right? Like that's not easy to find. No, the, without compromising the product. Yeah, right. They're no, talented sure. musicians and <laughs> yeah. whether they liked it or not, it was allowed to happen. I don't know what their structure is in the band. I don't know if he technically owns the band and all the rights. Maybe that's, I don't know, but they stuck with him for a fucking long time. That's yeah. one factor. The other factor is to have an, a label allow you to hire Butch Vig and that him and Butch clicked like they did and um, got into each other's heads like they did. And that the label, they and they they did, you know, like I said, I, I really can't, I can't believe they paid for this, but they did get. Um, anxious several times and apparently Corgan was like no we are not compromising the sound by cutting corners so fuck it we won't record the I mean it was it was a big battle um, and for all of those factors to come together and then for something like this to be so well received it's like it just doesn't happen often no. you know this is this is um, I, I have a feeling this album is going to go down in history um, not for a while, probably another 20 years, you'll really look back on it and really see the genius a lot better on yeah. this and that it, they really made a statement on this, um, which, you know, and it's funny, everything that I interviews, I read and saw about, um, Corrigan and big, they said that they were too emotionally exhausted <laughs> to mix the yeah. record when they were done. <laughs> so I was just like, okay. But the mix took 36 fucking days to complete. Mixing does not normally take that long. No, <laughs> that's like yeah. insane. So that was probably a big chunk of the budget too, actually. Now yeah. I think yeah. about it. So yeah, a little, a little bit of Lars and Headfield going on. Oh, I don't Schemy. know. Scheming. <laughs> so all right so we we've got to do this before we move on to the next album and the next album is a double album and the reason why i chose to battle these three albums together is i wanted i wanted their original sound in there i wanted their first commercial success and i figured those two against a double album was fair so we've got gish and we've got siamese dream matt which one are you going to pick I mean, it's Siamese Dream for me. It's no Figured. contest. Yeah. All right, Dave. Siamese Dream. Okay. I am going to have to say the same thing. I'm not going to be the tiebreaker. I'm sorry. So uh, let's move on then to Melancholy. Oh, this is... I think this album is more well-known for the younger crowd than Siamese Dream is. I think this is probably their most identifiable album for the later listeners, possibly, yeah. and now. So this album was released in October of 95. Um, and, uh, whew, yeah. Um, 
This album is just chock, I mean, chock full of hits. Tonight, Tonight, Bullet with Butterfly Wings, like we said, Zero, 1979. Um, it, it's just, you know, I, Jelly Belly, I absolutely love. That's cool. That's a good one. Um, it's yeah. a great song. I, I remember, I guess for me, the, the standout here is 1979. Because I was like, oh, what is this? This is a... This is different. This is, you know, this is a different sound for them. And uh, I thought, I guess I assumed the album when I went out and bought it was going to be a lot like that. And I was very wrong. (laughs) 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 Um, Damn, this this album is just. I don't know how to describe this album. I don't know. Well, it's it's big. <laughs> it's big. So yeah. I mean, I think it was a very ambitious album. Um, and what's crazy that you were talking about is that I kind of feel like this was written long ago. I don't think it was written, you know, whenever he fell into that depression and that funk. We're talking about how he was writing songs. And I bet there were songs left over from that era that were used for Melancholy. Um, because there's the train again. Is that coming through <laughs> your window? Jesus. Yeah. This is like so close. <laughs> I'm like, a, I'm not even a stone's throw away, man. Like seriously, uh, like the walls, uh, the walls shake. Oh my God. Walls my bad. So, um, yeah, like I, I kind of feel like, you know, this was a long, this ambitious album in the making that they'd probably been making it for quite a while and maybe on the side, you know, um, and I mean, obviously, it's epic. It's got, I think, everything you'd want. Fast songs, slow songs, in-between songs. There's metallic, the metal, you know, sort of battle songs. And, um, you know, I, I think you see the the musicianship stand out with the different kinds of instrumentation used and just the way everything was used. You, you see the melancholic landscape that's created, you know, there's the peaks and valleys and stuff that the band wants to push forth. You could see all of that. You could hear all of that. Um, my only gripe, but this is nothing to do with the music itself. This has to do with just, I, I would have liked it to have been separated. So one album kind of have like the harder songs and the other album have like the slower songs, uh, kind of like an Opeth, uh, deliverance and damnation type thing where they separated two different albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that would have been pretty cool, but that's just, that's something else that has nothing to do with the music itself, but that was my only gripe. Um, and yeah, I think one of the surprise songs was uh, "Tales of a Scorched Earth." It's like nestled between these two like slow songs, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, yeah. boom! It just hits yeah. and it's like heavy. You're like, holy crap! Um, and one of the cool songs that I heard off of it that I mean, besides the hits, I'm, I'm, the, yeah. those, those yeah. are given. Um, we only come out at night. That's such a badass song, too. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, Zero is a. I think Le- Zero is a legit uh, metal song. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, Blue Bullet with Butterfly Wings is another one as well. I think that could be in, right in the middle. Um, but you know, I think tonight, tonight, kind of is what makes the entire album. I think kind of complete. It's, yes. It's like very in between everything, and mm-hmm. even though it's early on, it's it's an unforgettable song, I believe. 
you know, he said that he wrote this to kind of be like what it feels like to be a teenager, to be in your teens and early 20s. And wow. when I read that, I was like, I listened to the album on it from a completely different perspective. And it totally made totally sense all of a sudden. Because it was like, oh, I'm so depressed and sad. Yeah. I, mean, I remember being a teenager and just crying for no reason. And yeah. I would be, and I, and I remember my mom would be like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I hate you. I hate my <laughs> life. I hate everything. And then, yeah. you know, half an hour later, I'm fine. And, or I would just wake up angry for no reason. And you just feel yucky, you know? Your hormones are all fucked up. Everything sucks. You're not a kid anymore. You're not an adult yet. You don't know where the fuck you belong. You know, True. you're seeing your parents as people, not necessarily parents. You know, it's just a fucking crazy time in yeah. a, in human development. And I love that this kind of feels like... You know, it's like you give it to a kid and go, okay, this is what it's going to be like to be a teenager. Here you go. Listen to this album. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. <laughs> you <know>? I agree. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about it. Dave, I, uh, I, I would normally agree with you on the aspect of separating maybe the, what you call the heavier songs from the slower songs. Um, if it were not a concept album. This being a concept album, and I am a sucker for concept albums, I think you need that roller coaster sort of up right. and down with any kind of story or movie. You have the first act, you have the peaks and the valleys, second act, finale, whatever. Right. Um, you know, whether it's Pink Floyd's The Wall, I'm not a Pink Floyd fan, love The Wall. Um, Sailor's going to hate me for saying this, but whether it's like Green Day's American Idiot, you oh. need the peaks, you need the peaks and valleys concept album. I'm a sucker for it. Not a huge Green Day fan, but. Like the album, right. uh, like the stories they tell in their music. Uh, I mean, this is like to me, it's like a generational album, man. I mean, it's it's one of those albums. The songs, you know, the songs. People my age, you, you just you grew up with it. You know, whether you got into MTV around that time or later on, you know everything. I mean, fucking bullet with butterfly wings, man. I mean, everyone was fucking singing that song on the oh, bus. Yeah. Shit, dude. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know. Um, they thought they were the heaviest bands, you know, before they actually bought the album, they bought the album and they saw like all the other in between stuff and maybe they didn't know how to grasp it or anything like that. But, you know, I grasped it, I grasped it from pretty early on and could realize what they were trying to do and understood, you know, a lot of the subject matter from a really early age, which is kind of fucked up. But at the same time, um, good stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those albums that you first hear it and you remember where you were and what you were doing, you know, obviously with my story before, but, um, just amazing stuff, man, just really, really great stuff. And I think that they went into it as Corgan said, the end of a certain sound and the beginning of something else, opening the door to something else. And I actually think that they believe that this was going to be their final album, whether it was just the yeah, sound or yeah. just ever. Mm -hmm. And man, mm -hmm. they just put every fucking thing yeah. into it. Yeah. So and we were blessed with this. So it's uh, it's just a great album, great album. Yeah, yeah it, it, I think it's a it's a it's a phenomenal album. It's I have to call it a concept album. I know he hates that term, but I wonder if he looks back on it now and can actually say that. Um, but right. um, it's you know he also I, I think one of the things that was probably really great for him was he got to work with a lot of different instruments. I think he was trying, and not I think, it, it's, 
he was trying to create a much bigger and diverse sound with just using guitars. And I think that's where a lot of that overdubbing came from. And he would hear the sound in his head and he was trying to, you know, um, and he got to use strings and he got to use all yes. kinds of stuff in this album, which is really cool. And, yeah. um, you know, there are some musicians that are meant to uh, compose you know, it's one thing to write music. It's another thing to compose. And I think I would say he is definitely a composer because to compose is a total concept, right? It's a total sound. Um, and he's very, very good at that. Um, piano, synthesizers, drum loops, strings, like I said, yeah. using a lot. There was a live orchestra for Tonight Tonight. Um yeah. There were salt shakers and scissors that they used to make sounds. Again, I'm going to refer to pet sounds. I think he has that. Just go um, crazy. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just think he has that. Well, pet sounds gave so many music musicians a license to be and creative and to, just, yeah. and to just go like, I, I got to make what's in my head come out. And I think yeah. that's a beautiful thing. Um he related to his own guitar very differently in this album, in, in these albums or this album, whatever you want to say, which I think is really, really, really interesting. Um, yeah. I think that it was probably very, I feel like this was cathartic for him. Oh, hell yeah. And that's, that that's kind of really what comes through with this. So uh, yeah, I, I, you can't say a bad thing about this album in my opinion. Right. So um. All right, so we have Siamese Dream up against Melancholy, and we have to make a decision here. So, uh, Matt, why don't you go first? I'm going to go last. No, you have to go first. <laughs> I don't have a decision yet. I haven't made a decision yet. <laughs> Let me go last. All right, Dave. Jesus. All right, so <clears throat> between the two, uh, I'm going to pick Siamese Dream. Uh, I feel like it's the perfect dose of Special Pumpkins, the perfect dose of Billy, the perfect dose of just badass riffs and everything else in between. It's just right. Um, and um, I'm, I'm going to go with Simon's Dream. Oh, shit. Well, I'm going to tell you that I can't, I can't choose. It's impossible. I can't do it. And I, I can't. All right. <clears throat> This I'm is saying really, nothing. I'm saying this, no vote. This is really, this is really hard. <laughs> I mean, we've had some battles that were difficult. Yeah. But this is up there. Um, you know, we talked about bands that I like more, but as far as album battles go, and trying to weigh significance historically with musicianship and personal feelings and everything, this is pretty tough. Um. Man, you know, I got to go melancholy. I got to do it. <laughs> I got to, you know, as, as, and I'm not, this is not a detriment to Siamese Dreams. No, yeah, of course. If, if you have, if you are a music fan and have not heard the album from front to back, go listen to it now. Yes. Yeah. As I'm saying this, do it, do it. It is one of the greatest albums of the 90s by far. Do it. Um, because you probably heard Melancholy, or at least most of it. So go listen oh, yeah. to Simon's right, Dreams. Right, yeah. right. And I still uh, think it's severely underrated, even at that. It is very uh, underrated. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Because you're going yeah. against what they released later. So yeah. um, Also, I think the 
Billy Corgan's personality, the media built this personality of him. And I think it turned a lot of people off to the music. I think that's a fucking shame, you know? And if you're going to do that, then stop listening to Kiss. Stop listening to Guns N' Roses. Because those people are actual fucking douchebags. Don't listen to Hole. Don't, I mean, we could go on and on. Don't listen to Metallica. um, (laughs) Well, definitely don't listen to Metallica now that's for sure don't listen to Queens of the Stone Age don't listen to I mean you can't just fucking pick and choose listen to the albums and forget about the people behind them for a minute yeah but yeah melancholy is that's what I gotta go with that gotta do it so we have a tie have you guys ever had a tie we have not oh yeah we haven't had an unbreakable tie when we haven't had like no. When there's four of us, we could have an unbreakable tie, but when we've, there's three of us, we can't have a tie. Un, we've never. Yes, you can, because I'm not voting. The tie is going to stand. Wait, hold it's on an, a second. So you made me vote. Yep. <laughs> but you're not going to vote. I fucking told you I can't. Vote. I didn't want to vote. <laughs> I didn't want to vote. I passed it to Dave. I can't do it. I won't. I can't. I well, literally can't do it. Well, Matt, by voting. We made it a tie, otherwise Siamese dream. That's true. Yeah. See, so they, so they're gonna both stand. I mean, that's just so. It's 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 in the listeners' hands, I guess. Now I don't even see anything wrong with that. And you know what? I don't either. Really cool. That's actually really cool. I think. I think they deserve to be an unbreakable tie. Yeah, screw the listeners. We're gonna let you talk about this at all. (laughs) Not screw the listeners. (laughs) No, 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 I'm kidding. Everybody, he did not mean that. I love you very much, and I will send you all love letters. I promise. (laughs) We'll just overdub the. Just overdub me saying I love you, listeners. (laughs) Um, This, this, I am going to be the 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 decider here, and I'm going to say that this is going to be our first unbreakable tie on Metal Rock and Whiskey. Um, which is funny because they're not even my favorite band, <laughs> you know. But this is how strongly I think we all feel about these albums because I know you guys struggled as well um, to choose one or the other. Your feet, your feet were in the fire. So there you have it: Siamese Dreams and Mel- Melancholy of the Infinite Sadness stand. And this is this is a historical moment in metal rock yeah. and And also saying that Ed does not get a vote in this. <laughs> Ed does not get a vote. Fuck it all up. <laughs> Where, where did you say he was again? At Cock? Or what did you say? At the uh, Center of Citrus Kinship. Yeah. I have a feeling he would say something like, what's their last album they did? He'd be like, I'm going to vote for that one. Because he oh, does yeah. weird shit like that. Yeah, it's like Oceana. Great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? That's not, yeah. Um, all right. So there you have it, my friends. You just heard a historical moment <laughs> in Metal Rock and Whiskey. So, listeners, thank you for sticking around, as always. We do hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as we did, as much as we always do. And you witnessed the first here tonight. <laughs> you did. Uh, and as always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Metal Rock Whiskey. And we also have a super cool, super dope Facebook group under our name, of course, Metal Rock Whiskey. And follow us individually. You can find me at the Whiskey Obsessor. That is Whiskey, save the E. You can find Sail. me as Sailor Retro all over the internet. 
Dave, where can everybody find you? And please tell them a little bit about your podcast. So, um, That Metal Podcast. We are on Facebook at That That Metal Podcast. Instagram at Opeth1983. And you can find us on um, Spotify, iTunes, Radio Public, pretty much everywhere. Awesome. Find Ed as Bourbon Geek on Instagram. And hey, listeners, if you love us or even just like us just a little bit, hit that subscribe button and please give us a review. It really, really does matter. And of course, tune in next week for another episode of Metal Rock and Whiskey and find out where Ed really was. And as always, (laughs) fuck you, Lars. Later, guys. Cheers. This podcast is edited by Ed Dirsch, produced by me, Sailor Retro, with research by Matt LaRusso.